listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 282. What's going on, Mark? Well, it's been a crazy but awesome week. Oh, has it? Yeah, we're going to get into why it's been an awesome week. The craziest is we're so busy. So many new shows that we've launched. We've gotten so much feedback from our listeners. Thank every single one of y'all. They're loving the new shows. They're loving the existing shows. Somebody's got a lot of reviews. Yeah. Delfina's got a ton of reviews of the ESG Energize. Really fantastic. Yeah, perfect segue for what I'm about to say next. If you want to leave a review, we have a new way to do it. There's a link in the show notes. It doesn't matter what platform you're on, iOS, Android, Windows, Linux. <laughs> I'm well, not sure about really? Linux. Linux? I'm not sure about that. But go click on the link and it'll allow you to leave a quick review. Take a couple of seconds. We'd really appreciate it for this show or any of our shows. And if you want to try to remember it, it's lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGTW for Oil and Gas this week. Uh, we got a review. Speaking of reviews, you want to read it? Yeah. Speaking of loving this podcast, that's the title. Five stars. The only downside to your podcast is you don't record enough episodes. Hey, we've been actually really good. We're getting much better. Oh, yeah. I uh, love listening to what you guys have to say. As a Canadian living in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, with a husband who's been working in Texas for the past 13 years, it's nice to hear the optimism. Oil and gas versus the doom and gloom we've been hearing in Canada over the years from NI crew from Canada. That's a great review. Thank yeah, you very much. thank you. From Canada. Uh-huh. All right, Paige, this is normally where we get the news stories, but we're going to do something that we almost never do on this show, and we're going to actually have an interview. Oh. Yeah. Oh, is that the one you did today? One I did this morning. Nice. So I was at the Oil & Gas IQ Operational Excellent Oil & Gas. Big shout out to those people for hosting us. We had a ton of fun, did some podcast reviews, met a bunch of good people. We'll talk more about their conference later. But I interviewed Gretchen Watkins, who's president of Shell USA, and Paige, it was fantastic. Good. Well, I listened to it. It was really good. It was really good. The audience, we're going to just roll right into my interview at the Oil and Gas IQ Operational Excellence a Conference with uh, Gretchen Watson, president of Shell USA. All right, here we go. Thank you, everybody. So I'm Mark LaCour. I'm editor-in-chief of Oil and Gas Global Network. We have the largest network of oil and gas podcasts in the world. Very lucky and honored today to have Gretchen Watkins, president of Shell US, with me. And what I want to do is just kind of roll into it. If you have questions, wait till the end. Raise your hand. Somebody will walk by with a microphone. We'll also be taking questions. So Gretchen, in today's crazy geopolitical arena, energy security is a very hot topic. How is Shell going to continue to provide affordable, reliable oil and natural gas while also delivering decarbonization? Thanks, Mark. And thanks for inviting me to join you this morning for this live podcast, but also thanks to all of you for being part of this. We've experienced a bit of a one-two punch, I think, as an industry over the course of the last couple of years, and frankly, as a world, not just the industry, but we had the pandemic. We saw things happen during the pandemic that had really never happened before in most of our lifetimes, if not all of our lifetimes. We saw demand destruction almost immediately. We saw negative hydrocarbon prices, whoever thought we would see that. Then we saw the world roar back and demand recovered very quickly. Supply didn't recover as quickly, so we started to see a crunch there between supply and demand. 
And then earlier this year, of course, Russia invades Ukraine, and a lot of Western countries and companies say, you know, we're out, we're not buying anything from Russia. And so the whole hydrocarbon system had to reshape itself, rejig itself. And so we're now continuing to see, I think, the impact of that on global markets, on global economies. The events of the last few years, I believe, have put energy security right at the top of the list of many, if not all, people's agendas. I think it wasn't really something people were thinking about before the events of the last couple of years. People are thinking about it a lot now. I think that's a good thing because what it does is I think it shines a light on the myth that this energy transition can happen quickly and easily with the flick of a switch. It cannot. It can happen and it, it needs to happen. I firmly believe, my company Shell very firmly believes and we're working every day to accelerate the energy transition. But today the world needs hydrocarbons and the world needs hydrocarbons from places like the U.S. Gulf of Mexico, where those of you that drove your cars here this morning, or maybe some of you flew in an airplane to get here, you know, we are going to continue to need that tomorrow and the next day. And we firmly believe even in 2050, when we have a target to be net zero, we're still going to need those hydrocarbons. Gulf of Mexico being the lowest carbon footprint molecules and barrels that we as Americans can consume, it means that's a really important asset for the country from an energy security standpoint. That said, the world is moving quickly. I don't believe that the events of the last couple of years have slowed down the energy transition. I think it's picking up speed. I think our staff, our citizens, our communities expect us to keep working towards accelerating that. And so we're doing that. And every year we're investing more and more in renewables, low and no carbon fuels. Yeah, great answer. And it has been a crazy time for the industry. So we're at the Operational Excellence Conference. So yeah. I have to ask this. Why is Operational Excellence so important to addressing these challenges? So this is a topic very close to my own heart. I'm a mechanical engineer and I spent, I actually started my career working in the Gulf of Mexico as a facilities engineer. And so operational excellence is something that I personally have lived and breathed from the start of my career 32 years ago, all the way through today where I have you know, responsibility for a number of operations, well, for our operations here in the U.S., I think that what we've learned as an energy industry is the importance of things like being able to replicate at a very low cost. And so, for example, we're over the course of the next few months, we're going to bring on stream a big installation in the Gulf of Mexico called Vito. Vito, when it first hit the board as a design, cost 70% more than it actually was sanctioned at a couple of years ago. Because when we looked at it, we looked at it and said, well, we're doing all this really cool innovation stuff and stuff that's never been done before, but do we really need that? What we really need is something that's very, very low cost, very, very safe, and very, very reliable. And so we've actually sanctioned that at a 70% lower cost than we had initially, and we now are in the process of developing. We've sanctioned a new installation called Whale. Whale is essentially going to look exactly like Vito. And so the ability to sort of pick up and pull it over not only is a cost solution, which means affordable energy for more people, it's also a safety thing. So we can actually transfer people from one place to another. They know what they're seeing. They know how to work safely. They know how to operate safely. So I think those are the types of things that I think about when I think about operational excellence. I might just add one other thing is I think as an industry, we've gotten a lot better at that. And so an example of our upstream portfolio in Shell today it's about 20% smaller than it was when we had oil prices back in 2013. So oil prices were about where they were in 2013, about where they are today. We have 20% less production today, but our CFFO, or cash flow from operations, is actually 70% higher 
today. So that just shows you like we have driven a tremendous amount of efficiencies, costs out, and we're a whole lot safer from a process safety and personal safety perspective than we were 10 years ago. That's awesome. It really is incredible. You mentioned finance a little bit. You know, right now there's a lot of finger pointing at the super majors about making record profits the last couple of quarters. And a lot of people don't understand the disconnect between the operations and the price at the pump. Can we talk a little bit about those margins and why the price of the pump is so high? And at the same time, the fact that the industry as a whole is making profits, but they're not necessarily connected, are they? No, it's a good question, Mark, and one that I actually was asked to come testify in front of the congressional committee about earlier this year about the price at the pump. Shell, I'll just speak on behalf of Shell, we have 14,000 branded Shell retail stations in this country, and we really only own about 200 of them, and that's only because we just bought them and closed a deal literally in the last couple of months. And so the rest of them are actually franchise owners. And so, of course, we have a very important relationship with our franchise owners, but they're responsible for the price of the gasoline, as well as the price of the Hershey bars and and the soda that's in their convenience stores. And so we don't set the prices. In fact, there's lots of laws about not setting prices and not colluding on prices. So we can't ask our franchisees to set prices at a certain level either. So the market is the market. It is a global market for hydrocarbons. The price at the pump is based on the global market, and it's set by the folks that own those stations. And so there isn't really a connection. When we hear things from the president, you know, take the money you made and lower the price at the pump, there really is not a market mechanism to do that. I guess the other thing I would say about the finger pointing, and many of you, I think, are in this industry, and remember, it was, was it more than a two years ago where we were losing money as an industry, hand over fist, and many companies really took a beating. My company, we cut our dividend by two-thirds. We have not recovered that yet. We're in the process of recovering that. And so this is a cyclical industry. I think it's important to remember that when we make profits, we do return value to our shareholders and, frankly, invest in hydrocarbons and the energy transition. But there are vast periods of years where we don't make money, where we have to cut dividends or not return as much to our shareholders. And so I think it needs to be looked at over a longer period of time than what's happening at this moment. Yeah, great answer. You know, speaking of things that Shell does well, Shell does a really good job of recruiting the retention of talent. But in today's current world, a lot of our world's young people don't want to come work in our industry. And a lot has to do with negative public perception. You know, can you talk a little bit about how Shell's addressing this talent shortage? It is a really important question that you're asking, Mark, because I believe that, and I sit in a very privileged position of running Shell USA, which has everything from hydrocarbons to big wind projects that we're working on on the east coast of the U.S. We've bought a solar company based out of Kansas City called Savion that's got, I think, 25 gigawatts of power in its funnel right now. We've got our fingers on the pulse of energy, kind of from hydrocarbons all the way to renewables, 100% renewables. And I think when we talk to young people that are thinking about what do I want to do with my career, whether they're a geologist or an engineer or, frankly, an accountant, a supply chain expert, a human resources expert. If you want to be part of solving what I see as one of the world's biggest challenge and actually probably our generation's biggest challenge, which is climate change and be part of shaping the future of energy, join my company. Because I personally joined Shell four years ago after spending you know, a whole career working with some great, great companies, by the way. But I chose Shell because we are creating the future of energy. I think every single day we're creating the future of energy. 
We're creating the future of hydrocarbons, we're creating the future of wind, we're creating the future of the whole energy transformation that's happening. And so whether or not you're working on whale or deep water development in the Gulf of Mexico or on a wind development, you're part of a very important energy transformation that the world needs today. So I see it as an extremely compelling case, and I'm asked this a lot internally in Shell. Like, I work in the upstream. How am I connected to this? You're so connected to this. I mean, look at how all of us, I drove my car here this morning. All of us are using hydrocarbons every day, and even if you rode your bike here, your bike probably had plastic pieces that made it more dynamic or efficient that are made from hydrocarbons. And so I think that's the compelling case for it. I also would say that one of the things we're thinking a lot about also is how do we enroll people that live and work near our installations? And so whether that's the Louisiana Gulf Coast, where we have a refinery and a chemical plant, or here in Houston, or frankly, in Pennsylvania, where we also are commissioning, as we speak, a big polyethylene plant. You know, how do we work with academic institutions near there to create programs that actually develop the workforce that comes and works in those plants, that comes and works in those office buildings, and really is the workforce of the future? And so we've been very deliberate about establishing relationships with local institutions, University of Houston. We have a large grant with them to work on energy transition. Prairie View A&M here in Houston, we're doing a big research project on nature-based solutions and how does agriculture actually help in the capturing of carbon. Louisiana State University also similar. So looking at that academic institutions as really critical partners there too. Yeah, that is great. Great to hear. You mentioned a couple of projects in there and, and how you're using operational excellence to affect returns, safety, impact to the environment. Can you talk a little bit deeper about some of the projects Shell's working on, how it crosses over with operational excellence? Yeah, I think that the operational excellence theme permeates everything that we do. And in particular, I maybe would call out, I mentioned it earlier, but I'd call out safety as something that I think, you know, we can't lose sight of that. And I think as an industry, we've done so much around safety. And as many of our companies move into other parts of the energy system, whether that's wind or solar or frankly, low carbon fuels, you know, we shut down a refinery on the Louisiana Gulf Coast called Convent about 18 months ago. We're in the process of bringing that back on stream probably over the course of the next 18 or 24 months as a renewable, sustainable aviation fuel plant and renewable diesel plant. And so just because we're working on new things like that, safety and operational excellence remains a top priority. And so how are we looking at that? Well, we're looking at things that we've learned in the Gulf of Mexico over decades, you know, where I mentioned our process safety we just went 365 days in the Gulf of Mexico without a tier one or a tier two release, process safety release. And those of you that wow. speak that language know that that's really amazing. That means hydrocarbons did not leave our system for 365 days without the intention of <laughs> leaving our system. That's something we're extremely proud of. So how do we take that operational excellence mentality, transfer it into the new parts of our business that are new to us that we're getting into and that we're working with frankly, some new partners on. So for example, we just signed an MOU in Pennsylvania. We're, as I said, commissioning a chemical plant there just outside of Pittsburgh. We're right down the street from U.S. Steel, and we're right down the street from Equinor, who owns quite a bit of gas storage space and CO2 storage space. So we signed, I would call somewhat unlikely partners, Shell, Equinor, not necessarily unlikely, but you throw U.S. Steel in there, so when you think about operational excellence, we're also thinking about, all right, new partners, how do we transfer that operational excellence mentality around safety, 
around replicating low-cost design to new partnerships. And so that's another thing we're thinking a lot about and really in action on, I would say. I love that. That is awesome. So Gretchen, you often talk about transforming the industry in an inclusive way. What does that mean? I actually think as a country, and I don't know if you guys have seen this, but as a country, we're talking a lot more about the transition, the energy transition as one that needs to be something that moves everybody forward. So it can't be, and I actually think this is a very positive development. I think it stems from the murder of George Floyd, this resurgence of social justice, focus on social justice. But if the energy transition is only for people that can afford to put solar panels on their roofs or put Teslas in their garage, we've really missed a trick. I mean, that is not at all what we're after, I think. And so as a company, we're very much, Shell, we're very much focused on how do we move everybody forward? And I think one of the ways we do that is we ensure that we provide clean but affordable energy. And so that affordability actually is very much tied to operational excellence, because if you bring your costs down, you bring the cost of energy down to to people. The other way we're thinking about that, I would also say this inclusive transition or just transition, there's not a silver bullet. So I would say of all the things that we're doing, we're approaching this with an extreme amount of humility. We're a humble company, but this takes a lot of humbleness because there's not a silver bullet, there's not an easy answer. So a lot of listening going on, but we're also in action. Um, One of the things we're in action on, just to give an example, Mark, if I can, is supplier diversity. When you think about who are the contractors that you use, are you looking for contractors that are not just the usual suspects? I always contract with this guy because I know him and I know how he works, et cetera. But are you going out and looking for women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, and are you giving them a fair shake at it? We're actually doing, I think, going one step further, which is oftentimes there aren't many women-owned or minority-owned businesses, but there are people out there that aspire to be business owners. So we've actually gone out and tried to find those people that aspire to own their own company, and we are working with them to develop the financial support that they need to do that. In 2018, just to give an example, we signed a contract with a company called Jackson Offshore Operators. They had one vessel at the time, their supply company that works in the U.S. Gulf of Mexico. We signed a contract with their one vessel. They started providing services to us. We just earlier this year signed the second contract, multi-million dollar contract. Their fleet has grown to many vessels now. They have many contracts with many different companies, probably some of your companies. And so being able to work very closely with suppliers and look at how we can grow our spend. We're actually doubling our spend with diverse suppliers over the course of the next year. That, I think, is a really important part of making sure that this transition is inclusive. That's awesome. So if our attendees go walk away today with thinking about one thing about Shell, what would that one thing be? I would say that we are in action. We've learned that it's really important as we're transforming the energy system to not be all talk and no action. We're trying to flip that around and being mostly action and maybe not as much talk. And so we are putting our money where our mouth is on the energy transformation. We are um, spending money with diverse suppliers. We are spending money on clean energy like wind and solar. We're spending money on hydrocarbons, and we're making sure that as we do that, we are decarbonizing the way that we produce those hydrocarbons. We have set goals that start at net zero by 2050. That may sound like a long way off, and I won't be working for Shell in 2050, but we've also set targets very much in year. So this year, for example, the products that we sell to our customers 
we will reduce the carbon footprint of those products by three to four percent this year. Next year, six to eight percent. The following year, nine to twelve percent. So we're in action right now. We're not just setting targets out several decades, but we're setting targets this year. Our scope one and two, which is the emissions that are generated by the energy that we use to produce our products, we're going to cut that in half by 2030. So we've got short-term, medium-term, and long-term goals, and we're in action right now. And I would say, if you want to be part of the energy transformation, get in action. Be bold. Go out and do something. Love it. So before we get to the questions, last question for me. Finally, why do you think it's important for the industry to engage in forums like this? I think forums like this are really important. I mean, the topic operational excellence will never go out of style. I mean, it's always going to be a really important topic. But I also think coming together as an industry, as practitioners of energy, it can only result in new ideas and innovation. In this country, we're known around the world for being innovators. I mean, we have cracked the nut on some incredibly tough energy challenges. And now's our chance as a country and as an industry to do more of that. And so I think coming together in forums like this, this is where we are able to do more than just talk. We're able to talk, ideas are created, and we're able to go out and actually act on those. So if I would say anything, I would say, you know, listen, learn, but then go out and take some action based on the connections you make, the ideas that are generated here over the next day. Love this. All right, so we have some questions from Slido. If we have questions from the audience, raise your hand. Somebody will walk by with a microphone. Let's pick the first one, Gretchen. What is the most interesting project application or application you've seen of technology or digital transformation in the field in the past year? Well, I think some of the cool stuff that's going on in the field right now is actually around tracking methane. And we've moved from just looking at satellite imagery, which really isn't very technical. I mean, it shows where methane's being released to much more precise measurement at affordable cost. And I think that's really important if our industry is going to remain having a seat at the global energy table, we have to be producing in the most responsible, low-carbon footprint manner. And so I'm actually really bullish on technology that enables us to do that. And so one of the places I've seen that applied is, for example, in the Permian Basin, where I think we're getting much better about how we're tracking methane releases, methane emissions, and we're able to identify them and stop them much faster than we used to be able to. It is amazing some of the stuff you see in the field now that wasn't even here five years ago. Here's another good question. Where has Shell seen the biggest impact from automation in both in the field and also back in the office? Well, I would say automation is really important. It's funny because when I, I don't know about you guys, but when I joined the industry 32 years ago, it was a topic then, right? It was like, oh, what can we automate? We're still learning about what we can automate. But I think we've shifted it to not just a cost advantage, but also really a safety advantage. And so any automation that allows us to take people out of harm's way, reduce the number of people that need to be in a control room, out in the field actually taking measurements you know, in a plant or offshore, I think that kind of automation is really important. At our chemical plant outside of Pittsburgh, polyethylene plant that we're commissioning right now, we built a whole digital twin of that plant while it was actually under construction. We had this was really amazing. I went a couple of years ago. It was the largest infrastructure project in the whole country. And I think at one point we had like 
six of the world's, the 10 largest cranes in, on the site at one time. It looked like a whole city was being built. And we had built in advance of that a whole digital twin of what that plant was going to look like, what it looks like today. And we had already started operator training on that several years before. And we never have had the ability to do that before, to build something that precise so far in advance of the actual physical structure being there. So I've seen technology, digitization, and automation make a huge difference in our industry over the last few years. Yeah, it seems like our questions from our audience want to stay down that technology route. <laughs> so let's see, which one you want to do outside of digital energy mix? Are there other transformations that the oil and gas industry needs to consider? Outside of digital or energy mix? Well, I do think that it's important that as an industry, we all have goals around how we fit into the energy transformation. I work for a very big company. We have a strategy that says we're going to do four things. We're going to return value to our shareholders. We're going to protect the environment. We're going to protect nature. We're going to be net zero by 2050. And we're going to power lives. And so all of that drives everything we do. And everything that we do fits into at least one, if not more, of those categories. And we really hone in on, is this doing one of those four things? And if not, we shouldn't be doing it. I recognize that there's lots of different players. There's service companies. There's consultancies. There's all sorts of different players in the, as this one says, the oil and gas industry. But I think it's important that every single company has a purpose that links to the transformation. And whether that's reducing your emissions or actually investing in low carbon fuels, investing in renewables, supporting your, go look at your supply chain. What does your supply chain look like? And what are your suppliers doing under the banner of energy transformation? That's a place to go have a look that I think a lot of us, you know, our company hadn't spent a whole lot of time and we're in action on that now. Because quite frankly, we're suppliers for a lot of companies. We're getting asked that. Show us what you're doing, Shell, if you want to keep selling us your product. So I think there's a lot of ways that companies can get involved and engaged in the energy transformation. I would encourage all of you to have some way that you connect to that. Yeah. Let's go along that same question a little bit further. But one of the things I've noticed, I've been in the industry for 25 years is the diversity. To, to see women out in the field doing field tech jobs is incredible. And the very first place I ever saw it was with Shell, right? So y'all have a history of diversity and inclusion. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I have been a long time champion for diversity and have spent actually quite a bit of my own time and energy, in particular championing women in our industry. And then about two years ago, when the George Floyd event happened, I had a major kind of aha moment personally where I went out. I didn't actually know what to do about George Floyd. And I had recently moved back from Europe to Houston. And I wrote something on our Shell internal chat site. And I said, I don't know what to do about this. I feel angry. I feel heartbroken. I feel hurt. I don't know how to talk to people about this. And I just wanted to post this, I don't know what to do with all these emotions I'm feeling, and I don't even know how to really articulate it. And I went to sleep that night, and I woke up the next morning, and there were 1,200 responses to that. And people were saying things like, thank you for saying that. I've wanted to talk about this for so long, and I really didn't know if I was able to, or I didn't know how to do it either. Or actually, let me help you, Gretchen. There's a lot of people that want you to ask them how they're feeling. 
And so I was like, holy mackerel, like this is really, really important. We need to do something here. And so we have put, I would say, sort of afterburners behind our diversity, equity, and inclusion plan, which was trucking along. I would say, I think Shell's had a reputation for doing good work in the diversity and inclusion space. We weren't sort of really making huge strides. I would say today we're making huge strides. And some of the things that we've done is we have really driven a tremendous amount of transparency into our data. We're a company full of not all, but a lot of us are engineers, real technical people. We've put data in the hands of our managers and supervisors that they've never had before that frankly show how many years does a white engineer spend in a job grade versus a black engineer? How long does it take a black engineer to reach this certain job grade or the supervisory level versus a white versus Hispanic versus a Asian American? We've never broken that down before. And we've not only broken it down, but we've actually shared it very widely with all of our staff. I think it's so important that we enable our leaders to see what's happening because a lot of this is systemic and invisible. And so I called a number of my senior black leader friends in Shell and I said, we're about to share all this data. What's going to happen? <laughs> I was a little bit worried. And they said, people are going to say, I've known this for a long time and now I have proof that this is the way it is. They said, don't be scared. This is the right thing to do is to do this. And so it was a big can of worms in a lot of ways, but it has driven so much more accountability and ownership into the organization. So I think it's really critical. Back to your question, Mark, about how do we attract and retain? We have got to be an organization where people can bring their whole selves to their jobs and just feel like they can be at their maximum capacity in how they perform. And that's when we've won. That's when we've won. Yeah. Kudos to having the courage to do that. That had to be a risk to push that button to release all that data to the entire company. That's awesome. Still, if anybody has any questions, just raise your hand and we'll have somebody walk a microphone over. And then we're back to some more technical. Oh, here's a good one. Why do you think we're having trouble recruiting younger folks into our industry? And what should we do about it? Do you see an unintended hiring gap looming? I think it is a huge challenge that our industry recognizes and I think in a lot of ways in action on, I mean, certainly in Shell, we're starting very early on. And I think educating people about our industry is absolutely critical. So how are we doing that? Well, we're spending a lot of time actually with teachers. So over the course of 2021, for example, we touched, I think, 200,000 teachers in the Houston area, just putting information in their hands about the energy industry. What is it? How do we work? What is the energy system transformation that's happening all around us? And how can you teach this to your kids and actually teach them in a way that makes them feel like they're part of it? I think enabling young people to feel like they have a role to play is important because I think a lot of young people, and I speak as the mother of three teenagers, they want to be connected to something. They want to have a role to play. And if they don't see having a role to play, then they'll go look somewhere else where they think they can be more connected to it. So I think it's sharing stories. Like, for example, we've been a longtime partner with Penske. And if you're a NASCAR fan, you know, Team Penske and Shell have been longtime partners. But we're also partners with Penske off the race course. And so they've got a large fleet of trucks that they move lots of goods and services around the country. And we've been providers of fuel for them and lubricants for them for a long time. 
But now they've actually ordered a whole fleet of electric trucks, and we are the power source for them. We're actually selling them power, and we're selling them renewable power for their trucks. We went with Penske to meet with Starbucks, a longtime customer of Penske's. Starbucks says, I want all of my coffee beans and cups to arrive at my stores with clean fuel. We're now providing clean electricity to Penske, who powers their electric trucks that is moving Starbucks goods and services around in the U.S. Northwest. So if people can say, I went to Starbucks because I know that that actually arrived at the store with clean energy, with renewable energy, that's a connection for people. I'm now connected as a coffee drinker to the energy transformation. I see how I can be connected. I think making more of those connections for young people is important because they want to be part of the solution. They want to be part of a company that is working on transforming the energy system. And so I think that connection into teachers, connection into how everyday life you can make decisions, I think that's a big part of it. What a great story. What a great partnership, right? Uh, by the way, if you have a questions, we have a few minutes left to raise your hand. Here's a hard one. How will Shell maintain operational excellence with global supply chain issues? Yeah, so that is a good question. The global supply chain issues are from several different angles, right? There's supply chain issues that are still with us from the pandemic when the supply chain really got shut down in a lot of places and hasn't really picked up again. There's supply chain issues with hydrocarbons as we've removed a lot of the Russian sources of hydrocarbons from many Western countries in particular. And then there's supply chain issues that are the result of human rights issues and trade sanctions that we have with countries like China, where, frankly, a lot of our solar panels, for example, are being manufactured. And so I think those supply chain issues are coming at us from a lot of different places. And I think it is yet another variable, or frankly, three or four or five variables in the equation that makes our jobs more difficult and planning more difficult. So I think it's something that we need to be eyes wide open as an industry on. Certainly at Shell, we're working on planning. We're looking at how we resource our needs from a variety of different places. We're looking at different vendors than we have typically. It actually plays into our diverse supplier. We have an opportunity now to look at different types of vendors to actually work with some companies that maybe are quite small now, but with our help, they can scale up and become suppliers of choice for us. So it's a lot of different types of partnerships. I think it's planning ahead. And I think it's really keeping our eye on the prize of operational excellence still being such a critical success factor to our business. Yeah, it's uh, getting close on time, people. So if you want to ask a question, just raise your hand. Might walk by with the microphone. So Gretchen, you mentioned we'll still need hydrocarbons even in 2050. How are you helping the general public understand that oil and gas has to remain in the mix? Great question. Well, I think Shell is very much speaking to the net zero by 2050 target being net because we believe hydrocarbons are still going to be very much needed and very much a part of the energy mix in 2050. And in fact, in my role as uh, president of Shell USA, every time I speak to the Secretary of Energy, Secretary Granholm, who I speak to fairly frequently, or congressional representatives or senators, Part of my message is about the Gulf of Mexico and the importance of the barrels and molecules that come in from the U.S. Gulf of Mexico, which quite frankly are the lowest carbon footprint barrels and molecules that we as a country can be consuming. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's a whole lot better if we're going to use hydrocarbons for us to use hydrocarbons that are produced here in this country, 
than ones that come over on a ship from somewhere. Because think about the emissions of the ship. Think about all the things that go into moving barrels from point A to point B. I think it's an easy thing to see. I think explaining that to people is very important because oftentimes we hear things in the news about, oh, we shouldn't be exporting. No, actually, we should be exporting because it allows us to have a very flexible energy system and it allows us also the flexibility to consume the the barrels that we can and the molecules that we can right here on U.S. soil. And so I think that's part of it. The other part I think that's important is when we say net zero, a big part of that net is around carbon capture and sequestration. And so we are right now in action on looking at or investing in really carbon capture in some of the places where there's quite large emissions. And so we are an emitter on the Louisiana Gulf Coast. We are in partnership right now with several other companies at capturing carbon and sequestering that carbon. We believe that by 2035, our company will have 25 million tons of carbon capture and sequestration storage around the world. And that plays a huge role in the world being able to meet our net zero by 2050 targets, which frankly, this country has, and my company has, and many countries around the world actually have their own net zero targets. Good answer. How do you align leadership strategy priorities with frontline operations? Well, I mean, having worked myself on the front line for a number of years and having run operational businesses for a large part of my career, one of my own personal sort of values is that as a leader, whether you sit in headquarters or not, you have to listen to the front line first. (laughs) They're right at the front line and the people that are working there know what's happening. And if you lose that, I think you really do risk disconnecting your strategy with what's really happening. And so I think listening to the front line, the pandemic was so hard because we couldn't get out to the front line as much as I think many of us, certainly as much as I was used to and as much as I like to. But I think the front line can be the ones, almost the first signal that something may not be right. We need to invest more here. We're seeing maintenance and reliability issues here. We're seeing more and more safety issues here. You know, I think that has got to be our first and loudest signal as leaders. And then all of what we're hearing there needs to flow right into our strategy. So the strategy around returning to shareholders, protecting nature, net zero, powering lives, all of that is meaningless if we're not operating in a safe and reliable manner. And then that whole piece around powering lives, we very much see that as providing affordable energy. And so providing affordable energy means you're really, really good at operational excellence. And so I think that link is very, very tight there. And the disconnect, it could prove to be really dangerous. So we're very, very honed in on listening to what is the front line telling us. Yeah. With that, Gretchen, we're going to end this session. Audience, thank you so much for listening to us. Gretchen, thank you so much for coming here and also on the podcast. And I will now hand it back over to John. Great. Thank you. Wow, that was really great, Mark. It was, she was so genuine and so real and so passionate, super intelligent. And it was just a great time. And she answers some questions that, quite frankly, a lot of senior leaders in her position, their company probably would not have let them answer. But she was gung Really? Oh, yes. I love it. Right. So, you know, once again, big shout out to Shell and to Gretchen and to all in Cast IQ who helped us pull this together. And by the way, people, we almost never do this type of stuff. You know, this is Oil and Gas This Week. This is a new show. But I just thought it was important enough that we'd share this with our audience. She had a lot of great points. So, yeah, I absolutely agree. 
But let me tell you about the rig count. We're down three at 768 here in the U.S. Uh, we're up two in Canada at 212. And then we're at 879, up 19 internationally. That's all great numbers. Yeah. 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 Now, if we can just get some pipelines built and some refineries lit. <laughs> right. <laughs> get out of this energy constraint. But that's all. Everything's going the right way. Speaking of going the right way, if you want to follow us, all the different podcasts, Paige and I, uh, the whole OG and crew, the easiest thing is go to LinkedIn, type in Oil and Gas Global Network. Go ahead and join our page. It's just the best way for you to keep track of what we're doing with actually more new shows coming. We have four more new shows coming by <sighs> January. I know you and Audrey aren't happy about that. Well, it's not that we're not happy. That's just like more work on top of the work we already have. But you know what? Our audiences are demanding this and we're out there putting Stop demanding. the real and good stories about our industry out there to help educate the world. And while you're out there, if you'd like to leave a question for this show, our first Friday Q&A. Either go to oilandgasthisweek.com or OGGA.com. Both have a place for you to ask a question. Guess what, Paige? What? For our workforce of tomorrow, we're also putting a page so that people can ask questions there because we're starting to get people wanting to reach out to oh, that's cool. Jason and Kit and the team. So audience, you have another place to ask questions and have a different viewpoint than just Paige and I. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So just go ahead and go out there and find that. And if you want our monthly oil and gas events newsletter where we take all the oil and gas events and put them in one place and stick them in your inbox once a month, it's free. The link will also be in the show notes. And if you want myself or any of our experts to come speak at your event, to do a live podcast at your conference like we did last couple of days, reach out. I'll be happy to share the details. All right. You ready to get out of here? Uh-huh. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast. A production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.